I think the time has come for universal basic income, and I think there is a very interesting way to build new local economies and local economic developments with actors outside of government to fulfill these solutions. So it's a very, very interesting time for the birthing of all the different types of manifestations that this type of mechanism could bring along. Beliefs really matter, don't they? What we grow up believing, or what we're taught to believe in the earliest stages of our lives, has a huge bearing on the way we see the world later on. Sometimes, when something we believe to be true turns out not to be, or we're presented with evidence or experiences that change our minds, we get angry, we feel upset. Sometimes we want to fight against or reject everything represented by that belief we used to hold. My guest on the One-Eyed Man podcast today, Max Pashulik, is a pioneer in the world of impact investing and incubation of social entrepreneurs. But his first career was in corporate banking, arguably the opposite end of the impact spectrum. Max and I spent some time on a phone call recently talking about the cycle we often follow when we depart from, sometimes petulantly, <laughs> from those earlier core beliefs, only to circle around later to find ourselves using those skills we learned earlier on in our lives to do some good. I asked him if he'd be willing to share some of his story here on the show, and this shorter episode is the result. I hope you enjoy it. Max, thanks so much for joining me today. You are somewhat of a pioneer in the impact space. You've been doing this work and certainly advocating for this work longer than most people have been talking about it. But you didn't start there. Your journey started in a quite different place. Can you tell me a little bit about that, sort of the genesis of your work in impact and where you started out? Yeah, Mike, uh, thanks for having me on the show. The genesis, I don't want to go back in utero, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, I think the genesis probably started growing up in sort of post-apartheid South Africa. And I guess I was one of the early mixed-race families in the northern suburbs of Johannesburg with my father. My parents got divorced and mm. he married a partner from uh, Soweto and we had, we sort of found ourselves in a mixed race family really on. And I think mm. that was kind of probably the galvanizing point, probably unconsciously in the 80s and 90s. Mm. When I look back, definitely a genesis. But I would say the conscious genesis was when I finished uh, studying at UCT and like all of us sort of middle class white South Africans migrating from school to university to London. And I found myself in the financial system, firstly in business and corporate banking, and then later in asset management, and just found myself earning a lot of money and hating what I did. And I would say that knowing something was really wrong within my career probably started early on as I was getting to work at 6 a.m., finishing, you know, sometimes 7, 8 o'clock at night, and, uh, and I suffered from two years of complete insomnia, uh, slept 45 minutes a night. Mm. And I guess from that point started a personal journey around, okay, I really need to figure myself out in this world. Mm. And um, I, at a conference, bumped into a Ugandan woman whose um, family came from, it was a military family during Idi Amin's era who 
got um, who had to go into exile into England. She happened to live down the streets, and she started a a health nonprofit. And suddenly, mm. I found myself co-financing that nonprofit at age twenty four um, in about two thousand and two, two thousand three. And I think I found myself being kind of torn in this duality between working in a financial system I didn't believe, earning lots of money. Uh, relative to my actual capability, and then finding my heart was drawing me into social issues, and I think uh, mm. that was probably the first genesis point I sort of consciously remember. So uh, the early part of your story there is not a part that I'm familiar with. We spoke about some of the journey the other day and some of the projects you're involved in, but I didn't realize that you came from a family that was probably subjected to. Um, a lot of unpleasantness at that time in South Africa, right? A lot of injustice. How did that shape the way you, you think about the work that you do today, even though a lot has changed and a lot has, well, one might argue very little has changed, but, you know, a lot of time has passed since those formative years. Yeah, I think, you know, the experience of racism can actually be quite a complex issue. I mean, if you kind of call unpleasant, you know, sitting at a restaurant with your you know, father and partner as a young boy and your dad and partner being chased out of uh, a restaurant with baseball bats <laughs> during the early 90s, unpleasant. That was kind of some of the extremities of, of particularly my father's experience and me unconsciously being young. But I think mm. what that did, um, and I only realized really later, is it meant that I started to be able to walk between many worlds and I think that was not only informed by my family, but I, I went to Parktown Boys, which for those who know Johannesburg in South Africa, it sits sort of on the border between Bramfontein and Parktown. And yeah. at the turn of um, sort of when you know I went to high school in 1993 was really the first years where they allowed people of color into the school. And that encapsulated area of being, you know, co-located where it is and, having everywhere from El Dorado Park, Fordsburg, Soweto, Parktown, and myself in the northern suburbs, which was rare, gave me also quite a unique lens um, into a very traditional kind of white all-boys Milner school who's obviously, for those who know now, doesn't have a really good public record for some of its, its habits that continue today. Mm. Um, but I think that experience of my family allowed me to kind of associate move between different worlds that were not as homogeneous to what I grew up in my early years. And that's probably taken me into my career now. And I only reflect on that now because even the organization that I co-founded, you know, my, my co-founder, um, Pascal, who's, who doesn't work with us anymore, he's, you know, half Swiss, half Haitian. So he's mixed race. And my business partner, Tana, who grew up in Dallas and in Washington, D.C., you know, married an African-American woman and has mixed race children. And those are the, you know, the partners in my company. And I mm. sort of only consciously put it all together that perhaps we see the world slightly differently on both sides of the spectrum where a lot of polarity exists on both, you know, people sure. who are of color and white. So I think that's probably some of the unique perspective that started really on kind of, you know, when my parents got divorced. Do you identify as an activist at all? Uh, partly. I think I wear many masks and many hats. I also think the term activist for me has changed and evolved over years. And mm. perhaps when I was younger, 
uh, I was, you know, maybe classified as a little bit more of an angry activist, um, mm -hmm. where I think that was maybe a function of my ego, thinking I was better than other people, but at the same time, seeing that the world needs to be a better place. And mm. now it's changed slightly in that it's not as vocal and it's, it tends to be a little bit more quieter, even though I'm very opinionated and I still have a big ego, that, that hasn't changed. But yeah, I'd say it's a, it's a smaller part of who I am now. I don't believe I need to play my you know, role in the world by being an activist. And I think there are you know, many loud activists out there who, who are doing that work. Yeah, I remember clearly from my early religious journey, a, a quote, I think from, it's either Francis of Assisi or Thomas Aquinas, I can't remember which one, but it's a preach the gospel always and if necessary, use words adage, uh, which is quite powerful if you think of it in other contexts as well. Tell me about what's happened since. You've built, a, I guess, a whole array of projects and interventions, and I'm sure learned an absolute fortune of lessons in the process. Your current focus is a, an institution uh, called Impact Amplifier. Tell me a little bit about what that uh, does and who you're working with. Yeah, so the, the galvanizing force of Impact Amplifier probably started when I left London in 2005 and started mm. one of the early social enterprise incubators in 2006, it was, which I kind of thought was, you know, it was probably the first wave of, I'd say, social entrepreneurship that kind of hit the mainstream and and the mission kind of hasn't changed. It's changed form in that, you know, I resigned from a formal partnership to start Impact Amplifier to do things in a new way. And I think the galvanizing idea behind it was that the world is becoming more fractured, more unequal at every dimension of living and being um, socially, socioeconomically and environmentally. And new solutions need to be in place and those new solutions will partly most likely be entrepreneurial and mm. those entrepreneurs those innovators or intrapreneurs and in larger institutions need access to a whole range of capital and capacity to scale their efforts and that sort of became the guiding force of capital and capacity to enable social innovation and i think my interests around that probably coincide and are parallel to an interest in consciousness and personal development and human evolution. And I think mm -hmm. everything that's spun out of Impact Amplifier, which is not only supporting entrepreneurs and institutions through potentially this transition to a new economy, um, we've also birthed ideas and opportunities and ecosystem solutions out of that. So in some ways, it's, I guess, a creative endeavor. And that yep. there isn't, depending on how you look at it, you could look at it like an advisory or management consulting firm. And another lens, you could look at it like an asset manager. Another way, you could look at it as an accelerator. Um, but we also spin out ventures that we think if there aren't solutions and, you know, we're trying to create the solution. So to me, it's becoming more of an, a creative and an aspect of my own and my partner's uh, expression of what we're interested in. Uh, ultimately, I think uh, it's not probably the what you'll read in uh, in management books <laughs> because the business model changes a lot. But it's been a wonderful and interesting and expansive journey. You talk about 
the range and scope of problems that you're aware of and that you're exposed to and what seems to be ever-widening gaps and really important metrics that tell us about how people are living and whether they're fulfilled or not and their well-being. You, know, you have so much of this on your mind and, and uh, a part of your daily conversation. How do you stay focused? How do you choose which battles to fight? I imagine that's a, a challenge that's not unique to Max. It's anybody who cares at all about having a positive dent on the universe is faced with the same challenge. There's just so much to be done. How do you focus? Yeah, so I think the biggest lesson we're continually learning and that we're you know, not immune to is actually saying no. Um, I think that's the hardest thing to do is saying yes and pleasing others in a world where so much need and support is required is actually far more difficult than saying no. And yeah. our sense is that what we're focused on is building the capital and capacity engine in Africa that can galvanize opportunities and entrepreneurs around it if they sit within our, in our sphere of influence and our ecosystem. So the engine of social environmental change requires an ecosystem of, you know, a supply of, of entrepreneurs. And those entrepreneurs are sitting within certain systems and a set of a capital that they demand. And a lot of our focus of our institution of impact amplifier, at least, is to try and fill that demand and supply gap of capital. And that often means we're providing a whole range of solutions that sits in there. And I would say that growing the core of that capital and capacity engine is probably the core focus. Um, mm. However, that doesn't mean that other interests that both Tanner and I have outside of that strategy do not crop up, and many have. And we're having to keep on rounding ourselves back. And it's a bit of a tension, a consistent tension that we have as we build our institution. So, you know, I have a very particular interest in universal uh, basic income and using digital currencies for that. Uh, it's an interest that probably should not sit within impact amplifier, but there is an argument it could. And um, mm. we're consistently wrestling with the strategy of the engine versus the interests of the partnership and the partners. I wonder, did you follow Andrew Yang's presidential campaign trail at all? Yeah, I did. I, I, I thought Andrew was right on the money and perhaps too progressive for his time. And perhaps like the profits pre-COVID came into play and sort of fulfilled what I would say Andrew Yang was speaking about. And then largely, I would say, too, what you know Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren were speaking about, which were things like wealth taxes. So absolutely, I think the time has come for universal basic income. And I think there is a very interesting way to build new local economies and local economic developments with actors outside of government to fulfill these solutions. So it's a very, very interesting time for the birthing of all the different types of manifestations that this type of mechanism could bring the world. Yeah. I mean, he creates an interesting paradox, though, because he's also cautious around technological progress and the impact that that has on job creation or job security. And so you and I probably sit more comfortably in the technology is the thing possibly uh, that makes a concept like UBI 
possible for the first time ever. So there is a degree of paradoxical thinking there. But I'm sure you and I could spend a whole hour just talking about uh, UBIs. Maybe we should do that on a in a different date. Um, Absolutely. The debate is fascinating. And, uh, yeah, and I think yeah. it's going to be the biggest disruptor, not only for the global north, but for equally the global south, and where we have quite different dynamics. And we've got to start thinking about retrofitting our population towards high levels of productivity. And there is going to be a transition period in this new world. And I, I, think, I think there is a place for that mechanism. Not the whole solution, but there's definitely a place. Mm. Yeah, all versions of it. Exactly. Um, uh, Max, I want to go back to a point you made earlier on around demand and supply and facilitating the connection between the two of those. And I think this is a topic that's going to come up again and again in conversations in this season. Are you of the belief that there is more than enough capital to meet the needs of socially impactful, socially purposeful organizations? Or do you believe that there's a shortage of capital in the market right now? The story is, I think, a little bit complex and nuanced. I think there is mm -hmm. both an oversupply and an undersupply, depending on the geography and the stage of the venture and the return requirements of the investors. So okay. in South Africa, the capital cliff of post-revenue companies requiring between one to five million rand is definitely a major, major capital gap that has not been filled, not only for socially impactful ventures, but SMEs either. Yeah. Um, I, yeah. I mean, there are a whole range of estimates of just how many billions of rands are missing in that universe. I yeah. think there's a major gap with fund managers too, in that, you know, the way that fund managers work with 2% management fees and 20% carry models do not work at earlier stage ventures when mm. you're having to be longer term than a typical unicorn. You're needing to have a, an, a, maybe a five, seven, nine year view uh, on investments. We do not have the supply of capital at multiple stages to exit seed investors, to follow on investors like they do in the States. And I think that it ends up being that a lot of our investors start to gravitate towards later stage deals and larger deals. And the problem there particularly is that the supply of quality deals is haphazard. So we end up in a private equity market which is basically just, in my belief, largely just dressing up balance sheets and exiting a, you know, aging family businesses and dressing them up and reselling them on rather than increasing productivity towards earlier stage companies and new businesses. And I think that's probably one of the biggest gaps we have to solve as an ecosystem as a whole, never mind our intentional interest of looking at the more socially or environmentally impactful ventures. Is, is that just a coordination problem? I mean, geography shouldn't matter that much when it comes to allocating capital, provided the conditions are right and the, uh, the terms are correct and, and we're able to measure the efficacy of those investments. What, what is the handicap that is afforded to certain markets? So I wouldn't put a gross generalization, but what I can say outside of South Africa, you really have large pots of infrastructural capital you have definitely some private equity capital floating around. You've got a, a donor market with earlier stage ventures. But if you look at the large portion of venture funding that's coming into scalable ventures into Africa from the global north, I think one of the largest problems is that um, there's definitely a cultural bias. So mm. a, a US investor wants a deal to look and smell like it might look like in Silicon Valley. 
and an and African entrepreneur has actually is not equipped with that ethos, culture, and understanding. And I often find in working between the two, if an African entrepreneur went to a, a, a local high school in Kenya and, a, and another African university, they might just be crowded out unless they perhaps went to an Ivy League university in the U.S., I think there is definitely a language gap between many first-time entrepreneurs in Africa not knowing the language of investors, particularly venture investors from overseas, and a cultural mm. bias towards entrepreneurs that have certain types of um, structural components in their CV that feel less foreign. So that means we have a lot of venture funding basically going to expats on the continent largely. And so I think that's one of the cultural yeah. gaps I'd say in the venture funding space, it's equally seen in the social innovation universe. It, many African entrepreneurs are first-time entrepreneurs, so they haven't raised institutional money. They really you know, are on the ground and working. They've got appropriate technologies for where they're coming from at the right price points. But there, there is definitely a founder capacity gap and a middle management capacity gap that even if mm. the founder's successful, there's a whole range of talent in the country that needs to be found. So we're we're going through a massive capacity transition on the continent and that probably makes exit slower. It tends to not deal with capital, is not dealing well with the dynamics I feel on the African continent that might lengthen exit times, that might be patient enough and have a more, um, I think, a more rational and longer-term view of the continent and how long it actually takes to build ventures here. That's outside of South Africa. If this is your first time listening to The One-Eyed Man and you're wondering what I'm trying to achieve here, why don't you take a moment to go back to the trailer episode at the beginning of Season 1. It's really short, I promise, and will give you some insight and context. If you're enjoying the show, please consider sharing this episode or The One-Eyed Man channel with, well, all of your friends in the entire world. And now, back to the show. Max, I want to ask you quickly, and it's a slight departure from, from the topic we're on. Um, in a previous show, I spoke to a lecturer of mine, Oni Patton Power, who you might be familiar with around some of the uh, innovative vehicles for impact financing and some of the work she's doing in that space. So it certainly builds on or, or, or connects with what you were saying right now. It's just rethinking the models that have been embedded in our construct for a very long time. But I want to ask you a question around, you know, in a context like South Africa, where job creation in and of itself is such a critical part of community upliftment and social change, is every SME a social entrepreneurship venture? Or is it still worth differentiating social businesses from an SME, a normal, a normal in inverted commas business? And if so, how do we do that? And is that important to do? Yeah, this is probably one of the most common questions in the social innovation universe. And, you know, we have a, a particular view on that. And our view is quite simple, is that every activity that every individual SME institution has, has an impact. There is no yes. doubt that, um, and capital tends to magnify that impact. And yes. for our organization, we would like to really delve into the detail of what are you actually magnifying that's both good and not so good. 
So without a doubt, you know, if you scaled a typical tech venture in South Africa, an app that allowed creatives to build websites, you're going to create jobs. And you're going to, at the product or service dimension, that, you know, that, that product or service that's offered to SMMEs uh, that allows them to easily get a web presence, for instance, might have an impact. The people that you employ, predominantly probably from the middle class, is going to have an impact and create jobs. I think for us, we like to be very targeted. And, and one of the principles is for us is to say that all impact is not equal. So, you know, if I've got an app that or a technology solution or an agricultural processor that enables 10,000 smallholder farmers in my supply chain to um, quadruple their disposable family income and it's creating jobs in that dimension, our argument would be that we actually want to target that type of impact too. We, we, we want to allocate capital that does not look at all impact and all jobs as potentially equal, but let's look in the places in the world that are unequal, where our population is excluded, and let's see how we can bring more value to that. And to that, in that way, we kind of look at the impact that the product or service has to who the customer or the beneficiary is. If you're providing an inclusive health tech solution to low-income families in your product, that might be really interesting for us and have a greater impact than before. If you are able to procure in your supply chain and help people previously excluded into the formal economy and galvanize Mm. that, that's where my interest is. And many entrepreneurs do that, and I think do that to different degrees. And sometimes this becomes a very tricky place to be because you might want to have an impact, but you can actually also cause huge unintentional damage as soon as you put the capital, the magnifier effect on that. So I think actually attributing what are you impacting and whom, according to the principle of not all impact is equal, is kind of how Mm. we would look at it. That's really helpful. Max, I'm really lucky to be part of a, a variety of networks of very successful entrepreneurs, especially here in South Africa. And so many of them are genuinely good people who appreciate the complexity of the market that they operate in and the systematic or systems nature of the businesses that they conduct. And and I think have a deeper sense of impact in the sense that you've just spoken about, but still aren't exposed as much as we would like to the world that you operate in. Um, Why is there still such a big gap between intentional entrepreneurship and impact investing? And how do we bridge that gap? This is where probably the personal development and the psychological components come into more intentional, purpose-driven entrepreneurship. I think Mm. one of the principles is that if you're going to want to have a meaningful impact in the African context and tackle big issues, psychologically, you have to get your head around them, face them, not ignore them, and see if you've got some sort of ambition to change them. And one of the criteria that I think psychologically most human beings have, including myself, is that you're actually having to open yourself to the exposure of human suffering and pain. Because ultimately, many of the social entrepreneurs that we work with in very, very hard contexts are dealing with very, very deep, very ingrained, and very painful communities 
that they're building capacity mm. into. And if mm. you're able to consciously say the, you know, to oneself that is this the world I'm wanting to leave my children and grandchildren and how can I make the world a better place? You have to then pull yourself back to what the problem is. And if you pull yourself back to what the problem is, you expose yourself to the pain that already exists. And I think that's a really yeah. tough thing for us, for human beings to do. And we, and sometimes our lives are too complex and too busy with, you know, families and children and all the complexities of life to then open ourselves to that pain and suffering. And I think what COVID did quite radically in a way that we didn't expect is that we were all forced at home into quarantine and then we had to observe and bear witness to the pain and suffering of the most absolute vulnerable. And we're doing that every single day now. So mm -hmm. sometimes mm -hmm. life forces you and people shift usually out of that painful experience to wanting to do more. And sometimes it comes more naturally and it comes in a way that makes sense to you. And I think before, you know, I think the most important thing for most entrepreneurs who are looking for that shift is really just around being curious and figuring what resonates with you and not having, you know, large amounts of self-judgment around I'm not doing enough or but really trying to figure out, okay, you know, I, I'm here for 80, 90 years potentially. And what do I want to do with this life that's meaningful to me? And, that, and, and, and meaning for everyone is a very, very different thing. And I, I don't want to put hierarchies of meaning on anyone, but I think that's a very useful exercise when it's ready, if it ever becomes ready. No, I think that's, that's a very valid point. And, and for people who do want to go on that journey where do you point them practically? What's the start? And I realize that's a difficult question to answer because everybody's uh, situation or context is different. But um, what do I read? Uh, who do I talk to? What sites can I visit? Where would you redirect entrepreneurs who are probably sit more comfortably in the traditional world of entrepreneurship to more impactful thinking? Well, I mean, that's the, the good question, I think then, Mike, is how did it happen for you? How did you suddenly find yourself from the digital agency universe and the corporate universe into now all these new networks that you were never exposed to? So I'll flip it back to you. Huh, well played. Yeah, I think, you know, we discussed this briefly on the phone, but I think I've always been interested in the tension between creating successful businesses and then creating successful businesses that can be so without anybody having to lose out, right? You know, I, I always imagine the image of drawing concentric circles of influence around the founder, the executive team, shareholders, senior management, staff, suppliers, and being able to hypothetically check a box on each of those circles that says, yes, these people are better off for the existence of your business or, or for the existence of yourself just because you were you were willing to create value. And and I, I've always thought about business in those terms. And that could be because of some misplaced sense of guilt or, or some ego, fundamental ego driver. I'm sure all of those things play into that. But yeah, I think the moment you open up your um sense of value creation to a whole new world of possibilities there's yeah it's like opening pandora's box and discovering there's three more pandora's boxes inside but i guess the first thing that was interesting for me was getting uncomfortable getting out of my comfort zone and that's the incredible thing about the world that we live in at the moment and social media and our neighborhoods and if you want to you you can 
to steal Doug Rushkoff's um, wonderful statement on this topic, you know, if you make enough money, you can use it to insulate yourself from the problems of the world and probably succeed at that task. Or you can use that money to make the world the kind of place you don't have to insulate yourself against. And yeah, I guess I've been lucky enough to hear those sorts of opinions and each of those plants a seed that eventually germinates and, and you find yourself thinking about things very differently. Yeah. So, I mean, what you're saying to me is no different to perhaps how at least, you know, my child and many children learn. They, you yeah. know, they, you know, one day they're lying there as, as toddlers and they open their mouth and they start gargling. And at some point they say their first word and they go from the uncomfortable place of lying on their back to crawling and then the uncomfortable place mm-hmm. of taking their first step. And I think that evolutionary cycle in human beings doesn't stop. It's just a lot more direct and gross at the early stage of youth. But as we grow mm-hmm. older, actually, I think the, the uncomfortableness, uh, yes, it's, it's physical and perhaps psychophysical, but it's actually allowing old parts of ourselves to die and new parts of ourselves to open up that want to express mm. themselves at the right age of the development cycle. So, yeah. so I think being curious, um, being able and willing to shift your identity from what you were before to what you might become, knowing that my own identity, if it's too fixed, I can't shift and change. And allowing where curiosity gets you, and if that's books, it's that's websites, if that's a boredom of the, the same old friends you've hung around with and you're wanting to hang around with new thinkers, there are so many avenues to explore oneself that I think the most important element is the psychological um, death and rebirth process, the same way as a, a young teenager becomes a young adult or a young adult finds a partner and gets married, you're having to let go previous versions of one's identity. And if your identity has been so focused on, you know, more traditional entrepreneurship or a corporate life, and you're feeling a sense of unease and depression and something needs to mm. shift and change, the fire that mm. burns to allow that change to happen um, I bear using the word passionate. I don't, I don't like that word, but I definitely feel that allowing yourself to explore and be curious around new avenues, whether that might be creative and, you know, and, and musical, because I think, you know, the arts and science and social change is actually a, a wonderful coalesce between all three. But I think that's probably the, the foundation. And once you get a taste of that change, you probably can't go back to where you were in the digital agency world 10 years ago. You just couldn't do it. Like you as a person, as Mike, have changed fundamentally. And that's just evolution taking a place. And I think, you know, you can watch that, I think, in everyone's lives every five to ten years. That evolution um, is quite obvious and obviously, you know, much larger and more grosser when you're far younger because you're actually biologically enlarging and gaining gross motor skills. But I think that process is fundamental psychological process. And um, the mechanism, I think, that's closest to figuring out that change is coming is low-level anxiety and depression, insomnia, actually. And that means that there becomes an inner journey to try and figure out, okay, what am I unhappy about and what needs to shift in my life? And that opens up a whole other gambit. And that's another Alice in Wonderland we could talk about an hour through. 
Well, let's do that. I, we, sadly, we're limited for time today. But Max, uh, you know, I love this idea of being comfortable with being uncomfortable and, <laughs> and uh, throwing oneself into the realm of discomfort in order to learn. For people that want to find out more about your work and the projects that you're busy with right now, hopefully I can get you back so that we can talk about that in more detail. But, but for this moment, where do they go? Yeah, so I guess a few places. Um, impactamplifier.co.za is uh, our core website. It probably represents us three or four or five years ago, so we're going under a major website refresh. So you can read it now, but it'll change quite dramatically in about four or five weeks. Um, so that's one piece okay. of our work in Impact Amplifier. My work in agricultural technology is greenfingersmobile.com. You can go and check that out. We've also got an asset management component to what we do at Earth Capital, and we mm -hmm. will soon be announcing a new fund um, in Impact Amplifier called IAMP Capital very, very soon, and something I shared Fine. with you called Impact OS. But I think the home at the moment is Impact Amplifier. Amazing. Max, you've been a real gent, and I'll share those links in the show notes as well so that listeners can have a look. Have a great weekend, and I look forward to the next time we get to talk. Yeah, thanks, Mike. And thanks for all the time. And thanks for sharing your own great journey and evolution. It's so wonderful to hear more South Africans thinking, feeling like this and moving in this direction. And any way that I can be supportive to your work, please let us know. You rock. Thanks, dude. Pleasure. You've been listening to the One-Eyed Man podcast. I'm Mike Stopforth an entrepreneur, writer, and public speaker deeply curious about discovering better ways to lead and better ways to live in an increasingly complex world. I find the best source of these ideas is the experience and wisdom of interesting people who are taking unconventional approaches to solving the world's most compelling problems. If you'd like to hear from someone I haven't yet spoken to, visit MikeStopforth.com, click on the podcast link, and send through your suggestions. A big thanks to the Solid Gold Podcast Studios in Johannesburg, South Africa for making this production possible. And remember, in the land of the blind, the one-eyed man slash person is king. You've been listening to another episode from the Solid Gold Podcast Studios.